Happy Resurrection Sunday. Hey, we're going to be in a little bit different scripture this week uh, than I've ever done for Resurrection Sunday, so it might seem strange to you, the, the scripture we're going to focus on, but I believe it will be weaved together and you'll understand by the end why, why I chose this. So if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. We're in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The greatest day in history, finding refuge in our holy God. The only way that we can find refuge from God is in God, His Son. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. O Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of why Jesus came. That God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we are not righteous. God is holy and we need a Savior. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son. We celebrate his dying for our sins, defeating Satan, and then raising from the dead, having victory over the grave. Oh, what a glorious day, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth of your word today. Speak to us. Speak to us things that we need to know today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now this year we're going to discuss the following points. There's going to be five of them. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, of course he had to die because we're sinners. Why the brutality of the cross? It's a picture of the awfulness of sin. We're going to talk about his execution. There's people that don't believe that Jesus really died on the cross. There was a swoon theory. There was a substitute theory. Hey, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. There was eyewitness testimony to his resurrection. It really happened. And then finally, if the tomb is empty, what does that really mean to me? What does that really mean to me? To begin with, we must realize something. We must realize who God is and who we are. God is holy. God is holy. And we are sinners separated from our holy God. It is just that simple. Everyone born into this world is born with a sin curse. We are separated from God. The only way to have fellowship with God is have Jesus take our sin debt on himself, and we receive the gift of salvation that he provides for us. God is holy, meaning he's complete, unblemished, undefiled purity. The Bible describes it as resplendent light. Resplendent light. In 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now the question is, is can man really comprehend the holiness of God? And I would submit to you the answer to that question is no. Our comprehension is very limited. We can only, with our natural senses, observe the world around us or experience the world around us. Moses said this in Exodus 15, 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Holiness embraces every distinct attribute of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does give us a glimpse of what the holiness of God is, allows us to experience to some extent, but oh, we'll never know the whole purity of God until we are before him, folks, in our glorified state. 
What exquisite words? A question here is, what exquisite words exist to convey glory and honor and thanks to the Lord Almighty? Now, we know that before the throne of God, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we hear the angels singing over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we see in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, this is us in heaven. This is us projecting into the future. See, John is seeing heaven in the future. This is us already being there. What are we doing? You are worthy, O Lord. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise. You are worthy, O Lord. And in our text today, Isaiah shares with us what the seraphim were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Folks, the point is, is God is holy and we are not. And we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We are tainted by sin. Our depravity is is beyond our comprehension. We don't realize how depraved we really are. And that sin was passed on to each person because of Adam. Adam's sin was passed on to each one of us. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death passed upon all men, because all men have sinned. We have Adam's sin imputed to us. Folks, as sinners, as sinners, that's what we are, Till Jesus comes and cleans us up. As sinners, we must find refuge from sin in our holy God. That is his son. We must find our refuge from sin in God, his son. It all started out so well. Remember, it was perfect. It was perfect. Perfect creation. A perfect environment. Two perfect people. Absolutely sinless with no sin nature whatsoever. Adam and Eve were created, and the imago Dei, the image of God. Everything was indeed perfect until what happened? Sin entered the picture. And whenever you think of sin, think of destruction and death. Every time something bad happens, every time you see a funeral, every time you see a disease, every time you see a cancer, take it all the way back to the beginning with Satan, sin, destruction, and death. Oftentimes people blame God. Blame God. No, the sin condition came in because of humanity. Humanity chose to sin. It always brings death. And remember this, there's always collateral damage to sin. It is never isolated. Never isolated. And look at Adam's case. The collateral damage is who? Us. (laughs) We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we must understand the gravity of sin. We must understand the gravity that we have a sin problem. Sin is not simply a misstep. It is not a little misstep, a little indiscretion. Sin is awful. It is egregious. It's an insult to our holy God who created Adam and Eve perfect. Adam and Eve chose contrary to God. They chose, he, they chose contrary to God, which was a huge mistake. And anytime you choose contrary to God, anytime that we sin and choose contrary to God, we are doing this as they did. They put their own desires above God. Think about it. Whenever we sin, we're putting our own desires above God. Real love, true true loyalty to God must be tested. And Adam and Eve, let me say this again, they had contrary choice. God gave his higher creation, angels and humans, the ability to choose contrary to him. And true love cannot be forced. So if you really love God, you're going to obey his command. Real love demands a choice. Satan chose contrary, and one-third of the angelic realm chose to go with Satan. 
Those who are in the presence of God, worshiping God, these angelic beings chose to go with Satan. That's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. And Adam and Eve were tested. And they chose contrary. They had one, one thing they weren't supposed to do. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will die. And what does the serpent say? Oh, you won't die. And sin comes into God's creation. They ate. They died. They disobeyed God. And death entered the human condition. It's not simply physical death, but it's also spiritual death. Separated from a God. We cannot, as sinful beings, be in the presence of a holy God. We cannot. God has to provide a rescue for us. When Adam and Eve sinned, we term this the fall of man. The fall of man. Fallen from a perfect state to a state of sin and death and destruction. Remember, sin always brings death. It always brings death. Ezekiel 18.20 expresses this clearly. The soul that sins shall die. That is why it's 100%. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back and takes us out of here. That's our hope. That's our hope. Mankind's only hope is to find rescue, find rescue and refuge in our holy God. It's our only hope. For those who think they are good enough, I cannot tell you how many people I have spoken to that think, I'll say, you know, how do you know you're, where are you going to go when you die? Well, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm a pretty good person. I do a lot of good things. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. In God's eye, there is no one that is good. And remember this, my goodness will never, ever, ever merit heaven. So if you're in that group today that thinks you're a good person, that you're going to somehow get into heaven because you're good, that is not true because the Scripture tells us clearly in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. All of our righteous, all those good things that we think we're doing are like filthy rags. And the Bible is very clear in our sinful condition. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 elucidates us, makes us very clear. No one can miss this. It says this, notice the globalness of this. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, how many are righteous? None. Hey, you got an A on that question. One right so far. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God, for they all have turned aside. That's all of us. This is global. This is everyone. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So you think you're going to be the only good person that slides into heaven? No way. The scripture says none does good, nobody does good in the eyes of a holy God. God is holy. Remember, when, when Isaiah came before, before God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. He realized his depravity. Romans 3.23 makes it very clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, not all you guys except me. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us the, what we have to pay because we've sinned. For the wages of sin is death. Oh, but the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, God is our rescue. He sent us a rescue in his Son who is God. We find our refuge in our holy God. And remember this, salvation is a free gift. You know what you have to do to be saved? 
You have to believe. This is, this is so simple. Jesus paid it all. You have to believe that he died in your stead and simply receive the gift of salvation, and you'll be saved. Now, sanctification, living this thing out, it's a whole different program. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. That takes a lot of effort. That takes you in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, changing your life, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. But salvation is strictly a work of God. You just receive the benefits. You receive the gift. The first gospel message, I don't know if you realize this or not, is found in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But this is called, this is after the fall. God has dealt with Adam and Eve, is, is de- in the process of dealing with them. He's dealing with Satan. And, and, and he, he's gonna, he says to Satan, you're going to be crawling on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And he says something interesting in verse 15. This is the first gospel that is given in Scripture. This is called the Proto-Evangelium by theologians. Proto meaning first, evangelium meaning gospel or good news. This is the first good news about the redemption of mankind. And this is what God says, and I will put enmity, that is hostility and hatred, between you, Satan, and the woman, Israel, and between your seed, Satan, and your followers, and her seed, Jesus, Messiah. And notice this, he shall bruise your head. Messiah will bruise your head. This is a death blow to say, it goes on to say, you will bruise his heel, but but Satan, Jesus will bruise your head. This is the first gospel message. This is the first time Satan gets a heads up of, "Uh uh-oh, I think I did something really wrong. You sure did. The first gospel message, the proto-evangelium for those who are interested. So the first point of of, of our talk is this. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Most of you know. I think the simple answer is this. Jesus died because God loves us, and he loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That's why Jesus had to die. And I want you to realize, please hear this. We are all infected with a sin disease. We all have stage four sin. You've heard of stage four cancer? We have stage four sin, terminal, terminal sin situation. And the only rescue is Jesus Christ. And I want to read you something that some person wrote. He said this, Jesus had to die because he loved me. Compassion by definition means seeing a need, then taking action to do something about meeting that need. In his love and compassion, Jesus knew our distance from God. We were enemies of God, and Jesus felt compassion for us. And and aren't you just thrilled that he did? Amen. Amen. That would be a time for an amen if there was ever a time. Jesus had compassion on us. Now, what did Jesus' death accomplish for you? Jesus' death did this. He reconciled believers to our holy God. Now remember, there is a gap between humanity and God. We're separated from God by by our sin. God is here. We are here. We're separated from God. Sin is a big deal. You know, we've been like frogs in 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 the water. We've become kind of numb to it. Not God. God is holy. The only way across this chasm between sinful man and a holy God is the cross of Jesus Christ. No other way. No other world religion, no Buddha, 
no Hindu, no Mohammed, no Krishna, no, 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 no. Just put another no in there. No, there's one, and that is Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's exclusive through the cross. That has to be indelibly imprinted in our minds. Remember the gulf, the expanse. And remember, the only way across that expanse is the cross of the Lord Jesus. He took our sin debt on himself. Now, reconciliation is this. It's, it is this. God takes our sin on himself. This is called, in theological terms, penal substitution. He took our sins on himself and establishes a relationship of peace with mankind. God has withdrawn his wrath. You see, God's view of everyone that is a sinner is that they are under the wrath of God. And God has sent his son to take us out of the wrath and bring us into his kingdom, into his presence, be able to live with him forever through his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus' death on our behalf reconciled us to a holy God. Jesus Christ is God's love gift to us. It's his love gift to us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth with a mission. And that mission was to die, and nothing was going to stop him from doing that. Even though Peter tried to intervene on that one time, remember? Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Peter's all feeling all puffed up. And what does Peter do? Jesus says, he says the following. He says this in, in, in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. And what does Peter do, being all full of himself? He tries to rebuke Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Jesus, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. <laughs> I mean, can you, have you ever been there? I want you to do this this way, Satan is always beside, behind the scenes trying to disrupt the mission of Christ. He's always doing it. In, in, in verse 22, he says this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. This shall not happen to you, Jesus. I'll see to it that this won't. Can you imagine the hubris of Peter? <laughs> yeah, Jesus' response is this, get me behind me, Satan. Can you imagine what Peter must have felt like? You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus was set on the mission. He was set on the mission, and nothing would stop it. Nothing. Jesus' mission was given before the world was formed, to die for the sins of man. This is, an after, this is not an afterthought. Oh, no, God is not biting his fingernails going, Oh, Adam and Eve sinned. What do I do now? I have to think of something. Oh, no, God is, knows the beginning from the end. He knows the whole timeline of humanity. He knows your whole life. And as a matter of fact, if you're a believer, you're already seated in the heavenlies right now. That is your position in Christ. Jesus' mission was to come and die. Why only Jesus? Why not a great angel? Why not a, a, a great king, a, a wonderful person, a, a big prophet? Why couldn't they do it? Because only a sinless one like Adam could substitute for us, could die for our sins. Only a sin had to be a kinsman of Adam. It could only be another perfect human to die for the perfect human who sinned. There are no other perfect humans. We all have the sin curse except Jesus, who was 
who was the Son of God, virgin-born. Jesus, the God-man, is the only sinless person who could die for us, who could do this. All others have sinned and are disqualified. No great king, no great prophet, no huge angel, only Jesus. Jesus is and has always been mankind's only, only, only hope. There is no salvation in any other world religion. Only Christianity has a sinless Savior, and this is not popular today. If you stand on this, you are going to be criticized as intolerant and narrow and bigoted, and you will be hated by the majority of people. We do not believe in coexist. We want to coexist with everybody and tell them about Jesus. But there is no coexistence to a multiple ways to God. There is one way to God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And remember, this was the Father's will, and it happened before the foundations of the world. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we read these words. This is Luke writing, and he says, Him, that would be the Lord Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Delivered by God, the foreknowledge of God, the prognosis, to, to, to know before you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified. If you are in the text, you can turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to give a little bit more clarity on this. You know, a lot of times people will condemn the Jews and say, oh, the Jews are Christ killers. And for 2,000 years, they have been persecuted because they're Christ killers. Let me show you who really killed Christ. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, speaking of Jesus being the anointed one, now watch who is culpable in this. Both Herod, the king, Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, with the Gentiles, the Gentiles, that's all of us, okay, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now you think, you stop right there, you're going to think it's all of us are culpable. And we are all culpable. We are, it's because of our sin that Jesus died. But oh no, the plan was from the Father. The plan was from God. Watch this. To do whatever your hand, Father, whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. You remember in Isaiah, it pleased God, it pleased the Father to crush his son for our sins so that we could be in fellowship and have a relationship with him. That's the gospel message. It was not something that, oh, it just happened, and now God is trying to figure it out. He knew the beginning from the end. Why did Jesus have to die? He was the only one who could pay the price for our sins. No one else can do it. There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. We Folks, we find our refuge in God. We find our refuge in God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point is this. Why the brutality of the cross? Why did it have to be so awful? Well, it's a picture of the awfulness of sin, the price of sin. Now, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 19, verse 1 through 6. Now, while you're turning, listen to what I have to say before we get to John chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. It all started with six illegal trials. Six illegal trials. Three religious. Annas, who was the high, was the real high priest, but he was supplanted, re re replaced by Caiaphas. So we went before Annas, then the Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, and the Sanhedrin, the seventy rulers of Israel. 
and they all said him he was guilty. Then he had three civil trials. He went to Pilate, then to Herod, then to Pilate. Now let's just follow this for just a second. So Annas was the ex-high priest, and he was found guilty of irreverence. He didn't say a whole lot to, to Annas. Guilty of irreverence. Illegal. He went to Caiaphas, and he declared him guilty of blasphemy. The Sanhedrin, Caiaphas's buddies, guilty of blasphemy. Illegal, illegal, illegal. All held at night, all illegal, no representation for Jesus. And then the San, they find him guilty. The religious folks find him guilty, and what are they going to do? They can't do anything themselves, so they send him to Pilate and say, this guy is guilty. Kill him, Pilate. And what does he do? What does Pilate do? He finds him innocent, but yet it was still an illegal trial. Pilate doesn't want to deal with this, so he ships him off to Herod. You know what Herod wants to see? Tricks. Oh, do a trick for me, Jesus. Do something. Jesus didn't even open his mouth to Herod. And they had more beatings there. And finally, the last one, the second one, Herod sends him back to Pilate, and he's found innocent again. And Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing, has him beating, has him flogged. More on that in just a second. All the trials were illegal. All were trumped-up charges, all paving the way to the cross, and Jesus knew exactly what was awaiting him. He knew exactly what was awaiting him. Remember in Gethsemane, recorded in the Gospels, but Matthew 26, 39 says this, Oh, Father, as he's pleading with Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Father. Your will be done. Jesus is saying, Father, I don't want to do this if I don't have to do this. If any other way, any other way than the cross, any way to bear the sins, because I'll be separated from you forever. He wasn't worried about the beating. He wasn't worried about dying. He was worried about being separated from Father, experiencing the sins of all of us on him, which Father cannot look at. There's darkness over the face of the earth for three hours when Jesus took our sin debt. If there's any other way to be righteous before a holy God, and there wasn't, remember what Jesus went through in these trials. He was insulted. The God who created these guys that are insulted, he was insulted, degraded, humiliated, and beaten mercilessly. Jesus was examined by Pilate a second time. They found no fault in him, and he was scourged, and he was beaten. This is the thing that Jesus was beaten with. A short wooden handle, the flagrum, with several leather thongs were attached. Each leather thong had pieces of bone or metal on the end, anything to lacerate. But at Jesus' time, it could have been any kind of metal, could have been bone, could have been anything that would lacerate the skin, lacerate down to the bone. And this was a serious thing when you got beat with a flagrum. In John 19, verses 1 through 6, we read this narrative. So when Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now, when you go to Israel and you see the thorns that were made as the crown of thorns, these are big, huge, pointed nails that he got rammed into his head. This wasn't a little bitty picker. This was not a picker. These were thorns, and they riveted into his skull. And you have your periosteum here has all kinds of pain receptors in your skull. It hurts. It hurts. And he screwed it into his head. This crown of thorns was another big torture point. And they put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. 
humiliating that he's a king. Then they, then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And I would imagine they struck him over and over and over. And I, I would submit to you that, you know, Jesus wasn't up there like a fighter, trying to go with the punches and roll with it. He was taking every blow for us. Smack, smack, smack. Blood, swelling, swelling, smack. No dodging. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you. Pilate knew that he was going to have him beaten to a pulp, hoping that it, the crowd would have mercy when they saw him. That you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Behold the bloody mess that I'm showing you. I declare him innocent. And notice what happens. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And later on in the chapter, in verse 15, the crowd cries out, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. And they delivered him to be crucified. In verse 16, they took Jesus and they led him away. Again, Isaiah says he was beaten so badly in Isaiah 52, 14 that he no longer looked human. And he did it for us. John MacArthur says this, quote, Scourging was a horribly cruel act in which the victim was, stri was stripped, tied to a post, and beaten by several torturers. Soldiers alternated when exhausted. A short wooden handle, the flagrum, with several leather thongs were attached. Each leather thong had pieces of bone or metal on the end, anything to lacerate. The beating was so savage that sometimes victims died. The body could be torn or lacerated to such an extent that the veins or the bones were exposed. Such flogging often preceded execution in order to weaken and dehumanize the victim. Now notice the soldiers took turns. They took turns. The Jews had a rule, 39 lashes. 40, you could give 40, but in order not to break the law, they would give 39. So they'd be safe in keeping the law, keeping the rules. The Romans had no, no such constraint. So they had guys lined up. And when you beat the guy, you beat him from his shoulders on down, torso on down, all the way down the legs, back of the legs, front of the legs, front of the body, lacerating, ripping away the skin. It was a brutal, awful situation. We, you know, you sometimes see a little bit of picture, a little bit of blood. It was a bloody mess, a bloody mess. After Jesus was beaten mercilessly, and again, it was for our sin. It was for our sin. He carried his own cross, so weakened by the beatings that Simon of Cyrene steps in and carries the cross for him. I'll tell you, what an honor for Simon. What an honor for Simon. Why the brutality of the cross? Jesus was treated as a despicable criminal for our sin. The full weight of what Jesus Christ has done is revealed in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Quote, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. He shall bear their iniquities, our sin. The brutality of the cross is a true picture of our sin. Sin is not a laughing matter to our holy God. It can only be punished by death, either ours or a substitute, Jesus Christ. Folks, mankind's only hope is to find our refuge in God in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why the brutality of the cross? It's a picture of the awful, awful price of sin. The third point is his execution. Jesus died on the cross. He really died on the cross. He wasn't substituted for. There wasn't a swoon. He wasn't faking his death, that sort of thing. And you'll see in just a moment why that's true. After being nailed to the cross, Jesus would die by slow asphyxiation. The nails that were used were five to seven inch spikes, and these were driven through with a heavy mallet. And they drove these spikes through the wrist, not through the hand, the hand would have tore out, through the wrist and through the ankle, through the ankle. And it was brutal. Isaiah 53 says this, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. He would be then hoisted up on a cross. His arms would be extended. He would be extended, stretched six inches, causing bilateral shoulder dislocation. Shoulder dislocation. Psalm 22.14 says, My bones are out of joint. Now the real reason for death is this, quote, the writer says this, it was slow death by asphyxiation. The stress on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest into an inhaled position. So in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through, embed itself in the ankle, and rip the ankle more and more. After exhaling, the person would be able to relax down and take another breath in. This would go on until complete exhaustion. To expedite death, what did the Roman soldiers do? They took a club to the guy on the left and the guy on the right. Because it was a Sabbath, they, the Jews wanted him down off that cross before the Passover started. So they crushed the guy's tibias on the right, they crushed the guy's tibia on the left, and they get to Jesus, and they go to crush his tibia, but he's already dead. He's already dead. It was very important that his tibias weren't crushed. Because the Passover lamb could not have a broken bone, and that was a type of Christ, a type of Christ. Jesus, if, he, if they crushed his tibias, he would not have been the Messiah. But he was already dead. Now notice what happens next in the, in the, in the sequence of events. To be sure that Jesus was dead, a Roman soldier would pierce his side with a spear to confirm his death. It's, it's recorded in John 19.34, at least one place. Now, I have a picture of a spear. This is a long object. Remember, Jesus was hoisted up on a cross. It would have a long pole, and he would take this sharp, large object, and it would, be, it would go right below the rib cage and aim directly for the heart. This was a death blow. This was to confirm that the person was dead. The Roman executioners were expert at this. They did this over and over and over and over in Rome. It wasn't just they picked his side with the spear. Ooh. No, they jammed that thing in, wiggled it around, and made sure they got blood and everything back, knowing that they hit the heart. This is a gruesome situation. Why did this happen? Jesus died for our sins. He did it all for us. Now, to make it more vivid in your minds, which I don't think I have to do, but anyway, uh, the Romans concluded that Jesus was dead, and they were expert executioners. 
there were four executioners that would have to validate the death. And if they were wrong, if somehow someone was able to get off of that cross alive, those four guys would die. So you knew that Jesus died on the cross. No question about it. No question about it. He was dead. Now think about this. For skeptics, think about this. One person wrote this. Please, think about this. Even if we say that all of the evidence is incorrect and that Jesus somehow survived the cross, how could he have gotten out of the linen wrappings? We didn't cover this, but Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped him up with a hundred pounds of aloe and gunk all around him to wrap him up in, like a mummy. A hundred pounds, or thereabouts, or thereabouts. It was a lot of stuff, okay? A lot of stuff he was wrapped up with. And then, then to be in that condition and then roll back the stone, which is, by the way, put on an angle. It was a huge stone. When you go to Israel, you can see it. A giant stone that you can't move because you're trying to push it uphill. It goes down and then locks. How could he do that? Roll back the, the, the boulder covering the entrance. And then sneak past the guards. And remember, this is a guy that people claim to have seen strolling on the road to Emmaus seven miles from Jerusalem shortly after his death. Think about the condition he would have been in. He would have had nails in his feet, arms that were dislocated, massive wounds on his back and chest and legs, a spear wound in his chest. He would have been a train wreck, hardly the type of person that would inspire you to go out and proclaim that he is the Lord of life and who had triumphed over the grave. He goes on to say this, I mean, even if you saw a guy like this, you would feel bad for him and try to nurse him back to health. You wouldn't be prompted to start a worldwide movement based on the hope that you too will have a resurrected body just like that. That is not how something would get started. Look at folks, Jesus was executed by professionals and he died on the cross. It's just that simple. Jesus was placed in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, which fulfilled prophecy, by the way, was buried three days, and then he rose from the dead, and people saw him. The fourth point is this, the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is essential to the Christian faith. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we would still be in our sins. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. He would just have been another charlatan, another fake, another liar, because there were many that claimed to be the Messiah, but not our Jesus. He was the real deal. He raised from the dead. The evidence for the resurrection of our Lord is overwhelming. He was seen by 17 believers, his disciples and the women. But he was also seen by unbelievers, Paul being one of them. Jesus also appeared to unbelievers. Paul and James saw Jesus, and probably Jude. Paul was a vehement hater of Christians. But on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he met the resurrected Jesus. James and Jude thought, remember, they thought he was crazy until the resurrection. And then they both wrote books about him. And then Jesus appeared to over 500 at one time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have this recorded. It says this, For I delivered to you first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, For I delivered to you first of all, that which, I, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. 
Very specific. He came here to die for our sins. He didn't come here to be the most popular guy on earth. He came to die for us. According to the scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 people at one time. People talk about hallucinations. It's an illusion. 500 people at one time do not have the same hallucination. Does not happen. Impossible. And it says, whom the greater part remains in the present time. In other words, if you want to go verify what I'm saying, go talk to them. And they'll tell you they saw the resurrected Jesus. But some had fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me. Also, as, by, as one born out of time, Paul saw him too. He was, there was eyewitness testimony. And hear this, no one, no one lives out their lives for a known hoax. These guys went all around the known world. All of them died brutally. Actually, it's recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs how the disciples died. I've gone through this before. I'll go through this very quickly right now. Peter was crucified in Rome. You don't get crucified upside down across from your wife for a hoax. You don't get, it doesn't happen. Andrew, the brother of Peter, was crucified on an X-shaped cross. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Bartholomew was crucified. John, the brother of James, he, he, they tried to kill him and boil him in order. They couldn't do it. Matthew was slain with a halberd. That's an axe. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. James, the son of Elspheus, was beaten to death with a fuller's club. Simon, the zealot, was crucified. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Judas hung himself. Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, and then he was beheaded. And in Paul, of course, he was beheaded. Folks, this happened over a period of 30 years. None of these people recanted. You do not die for a hoax. Not 100% of them. You don't die for it. They died for what they knew to be true. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Folks, it's all true. They went from running and hiding in fear to proclaiming the resurrected Christ. The fifth and final point is this. If the tomb is empty, and we believe it's empty, it was an empty tomb, what does that mean to me? Simply put, it means this. Jesus is alive. Thank you. Jesus is alive, and it's all true. If the tomb is empty, I can build my life on what Jesus taught. I can trust it. I have a moral foundation to live on. Jesus, because the tomb is empty, I know Jesus is alive. I can know him personally. Personal, I have a personal relationship with Christ. And then because the tomb is empty, his death has been conquered. And if I believe in him, I will not taste death. I will never be separated from my God. Not for a nanosecond. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. What a gift. What a, what a wonderful thing to look forward to. Jesus can comfort us. He's alive and close to the brokenhearted. And because the tomb is empty, I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by believing in him. Folks, today we celebrate the greatest day in history. That means Jesus is alive. The evidence is overwhelming. His execution by professionals. These guys knew what they were doing. The eyewitness testimony of the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus. 
all bear witness to the truth of his death, burial, and resurrection. You too, you too can have your greatest day. Jesus bids you come and believe. Come and believe the message. Receive the free gift of salvation that God offers us through his Son. Revelation 22.17 is the last invitation in the Bible. And it pleads to come. The final invitation to salvation in Scripture. Let all who desire come. And the Spirit and the bride say come. Notice the, the stress. God is straining. He's pulling. He's drawing people. He's drawing people. He's drawing people. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Let him who hears say come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Folks, Jesus is our Savior. No world leader, no any world, anybody in any other world religion claimed to be God incarnate who could take our sins. And he rightfully deserves my allegiance, my obedience, and my worship. What will you do with the evidence? That's a fair question. What will you do with the evidence? Today, may we find our refuge in our holy God, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Remember this. God is holy. That's how we started out. Isaiah, seeing the throne of God. And we are sinners. We must realize that we have no hope in, in ourselves. Outside of God's provision for us, there is no hope. His only begotten Son dying in our place is our hope. The resurrection, the Easter season, is all about how sinful, depraved, lost humanity can be saved, saved from our deplorable sin condition. How is this done? Simply, we must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ. We must take refuge from God in God. That was a quote from A.W. Tozer. He goes on to put it this way. We must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. And above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in his Son while he disciplines and chases and purges us that we may be partakers of his holiness, that we may be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. He sees you the moment you say yes to Jesus. He sees you like he sees his son, perfect and clean and whole and pure. And for the rest of your life, you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, being conformed to the likeness of Christ, getting rid of the old you, putting on the new you. By faith and obedience, Tozer goes on to say, by constant meditation on the holiness of God, by loving righteousness and hating iniquity, by a growing acquaintance with the spirit of holiness, we can acclimate ourselves to the fellowship of the saints on earth and, oh, hear this, prepare ourselves for eternal companionship with God. May we find our refuge in our holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we celebrate the greatest day in history. He is risen, folks. He is risen indeed, and it's all true. One more time. Get ready. Get your lungs expanded. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this time.
Father, right now, I pray that if someone is here that does not know you as their Savior, this could be their greatest day. And that they simply need to believe that you died in their place, that you took their sin debt, and receive the free gift of life that you offer to us. Our sin is an egregious thing to God. It's not just a little trifle thing. It is awful. The littlest sin to the greatest sin, they're all awful in the sights of a holy God. But Jesus provided a way. So I speak to you today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, in the quietness of this place, in the quietness of your heart, realize that you are sinful, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. I need a Savior. Say, Jesus, I believe you died in my place. And I receive you as my Savior. I commit myself to you. I trust in you as my Savior. If you do that, you will be saved. If you bow, you just keep your heads bowed. If someone has done that today, would you please raise your hand? If that is something that God has impressed upon you, you don't know whether you're born again. You don't know whether you're saved. If Jesus Christ has come into your life and you've done that, I won't call you out or anything. I will pray for you. Father, again, thank you for this time to study your word. And thank you for the greatest day of the, in history, the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, conquered the grave, conquered our enemy, our arch enemy, the Satan, and provided a way to live with a holy God forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.